Yeah, as we get started this morning, um, th- this hit me in the 8 a.m. gathering. I'm getting used to saying 8 o'clock, and I'm going to probably call you guys to 10 o'clock a few times, so bear with me. Um, as we get ready to get started this morning, I was thinking about this. I was kind of watching what was going on, and um, that's what the Lord kind of just, just impressed this to me. Like, I know that many of us showing up in the room today, like, we sing songs about wanting to be desperate, and we sing songs about kind of surrendering all. And we, we can listen to this kind of, this call for our church to become a desperate people, but bet there are some of us in the room that have no idea what that feels like right now. For whatever it is that you're facing, maybe you've never felt that in your entire life. Maybe the, the past months of your life have been just incredibly cold that you feel maybe indifferent to the things of God. Maybe uh, just whatever it is that you're facing, maybe the idea of desperation and this idea of you drawing close to the Lord seems like one of the furthest things from reality possible for you right now. And I want to tell you today, if that is you, you are in the right place. And if that is you, Jesus is for you. And he loves you. And I believe that this next 21 days can be, I pray, not just a three-week period of where you felt like you maybe drew closer to the Lord. I pray that in the next 21 days that this would change the trajectory of your lifetime from this day forward. I pray that you and I would look back after this 21-day period and we would see and we would know that we are different men and women because God has done something in our midst. And so if you are exhausted, if you are tired, if you are broken, if you are frustrated, Jesus welcomes you today with arms wide open and he is for you. Now, I say all that because I know that a 21-day call to prayer is slightly intimidating for some of us if we were honest enough. Right, like we would never admit it because we know it's the spiritual thing, like I'm going to participate in this 21 days of prayer and fasting, but if we were honest with ourselves, I I would have to imagine that for some of us it is rather intimidating. Like we know the struggles we face in prayer, we struggle with persistent prayer. We get on prayer kicks, we say, all right, this is a new year, new me, I'm going to pray every day this year, and that lasts for a week. And then we're back to old habits. We understand that we struggle with length of prayer. I've read about Martin Luther, the old German theologian recently that began his day with three hours of prayer. And so we kind of get this kick where I'm going to start every day. Lord, I'm going to spend three hours with you and be like Luther. And you get into your closet, you get into your room, you begin to pray. And after about 30 seconds, you look at your watch and you think, what happened? Three hours has turned into maybe 30 seconds. And we feel that. And if some of us are honest, man, I know that we've been bored in prayer before. You think about stuff you would never think about on a normal basis when you come to the Lord in prayer. You find your mind running all over the place. If that's you today, and I think that's the reality for many of us, I want to actually say on the front end, I can relate with you on that. I want to just willingly confess off the top that I do not stand up here today and present this to you as someone who has just been a champion of prayer his entire life. I stand here as someone today who has struggled mightily with prayer through the majority of my Christian life. I stand here as someone who has some of the best intentions, yet has some of the worst execution that you could actually imagine. And if you're here today and you feel any of those things, I want you to know that I stand there with you this morning. 
And I think that Jesus has a better way for us today. Uh, this past week, I was getting ready. I was actually visiting um, a, a friend and, and spending some time at a church in Nashville. And he was, oddly enough, preaching on prayer. And he uh, used this C.S. Lewis quote to start up his uh, sermon. And I was listening, me as someone who struggles with prayer, and I'm very aware of that. Um, and I listened to him read this quote, and I thought, that makes complete sense to me, as terrible as it is. So I'm going to put it up for you. This is from C.S. Lewis on a little book on prayer that he wrote. He says, prayer is irksome. An excuse to omit it is never unwelcome. When it's over, this casts a feeling of relief and holiday over the rest of the day. We are reluctant to begin. We are delighted to finish. While we are at prayer, but not while reading a novel or solving a crossword puzzle, any trifle is enough to distract us. And I see heads shaking. I was worried I was either going to be shamed or embraced for that quote. And I'm embraced by brothers and sisters today because if you're anything like me, you hear that quote and it's like, I know exactly what that looks like. Like that was me yesterday, right? Like I, I totally get that. And this week, this week and then starting in the coming weeks, I want to kind of set out to look at, man, does it actually have to be that way? Like we see prayer presented as this beautiful gift in the Scripture. So how do we begin to actually operate in prayer in such a way that we are experiencing the joy of what God has for us in prayer? And so today we're going to start that series, and we're going to look at a very, very simple question. The question we're going to look at together is this. It's going to set the foundation. We're going to answer the question today, what is prayer? What is prayer? That's our, our big question for today. And in order to do that, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 6. If you want to turn with me there in the scriptures, you can. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. We're going to read together what is known as the Lord's Prayer. Starting in verse 9, this is Jesus teaching his disciples on prayer. So know that going in. Jesus is gathered around with followers and he's teaching them what it means and what it looks like to pray. Jesus starts and he says this, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We'll stop there for now. Um, I, I would venture to say that many of us in the room, if, in fact, I don't do this often, I would bet all of us in the room know those verses, don't we? If you have been alive for maybe more than a week, you have probably heard this, especially if you grew up in the South, you have heard these verses in some capacity, right? Many of you probably have those verses memorized. You, you probably didn't need to turn into your Bible because it's implanted into your soul and your brain, and so you have that there. Um, if for you, if you ever played sports growing up, you probably prayed that prayer with a group of your teammates before or after a game. In fact, if you go to any kind of high school football game in the South right now, odds are you're going to hear the Lord's Prayer. We hear this prayer in a variety of settings. And in fact, many of us, many of us are very, very familiar with the words. Now, you would think, since Jesus is teaching on what prayer is, and since you and I know that prayer so well, surely that means that all of us are really good at praying, doesn't it? Right? No, it doesn't. I see a lot of uncertainty, like I should say yes, but I can't say yes. Yes, absolutely. No, we, you would think because, man, Jesus is telling us how to pray, and, and we all know this, then, man, we should all be just excellent A-plus people of prayer. Yet, for some reason, that's not the case for us. 
And this morning as we look at the Lord's Prayer to talk about what is prayer, I am fully aware of the incredible amount of familiarity that exists within the room for that prayer. And so what I want to ask you to do is kind of set that aside for a minute. Because I believe what we're going to look at together today can revolutionize what prayer looks like for you. And so here's where we're going to start. What is prayer according to Jesus? I wanted to sketch a simple definition for us to work on. What is prayer according to Jesus here in the Lord's Prayer? Uh, Prayer is simply this. Prayer is intentional, personal communication with the God of the universe. Prayer is intentional, personal communication with the God of the universe. Um, if, if we were to, on the way in this morning, give a pop quiz to every single one of you on what prayer is, I would bet that the majority of you would pass that quiz. We may actually finish 100%. Somewhere along the way, you would give me some sort of an answer that somewhat resembles prayer being intentional, personal communication with the God of the universe. It's, it's pretty simple in its nature. Uh, this week, as I was preparing my notes, I, I set out and I said, you know what, I want to look up a definition of prayer. I want to get a very simple definition and present that to the church and say, here's what prayer is. Like, let's get an easy definition for what is prayer. And I thought that would take me about five minutes to find. I have a lot of great resources. I have access to some of the best commentaries ever written. Like, I'm thinking this will take me no time to get a simple definition for prayer. Well, it took me a lot of time, and I did not find a very good simple definition for prayer. I searched all these trusted resources, trusted resource after trusted resource after trusted resource, and for some reason, I couldn't find a a lot of information out there just on a simple definition of what prayer is. See, I found a lot of things that were telling me about certain aspects of prayer, and I find, pl- I find plenty of resources for how to grow in prayer or five techniques to more faithful and committed prayer. I found plenty of that, but I couldn't find what prayer is. Now, you may ask, why is that the case? I think that the reason behind that is instinctively and intrinsically, you and I know what prayer is. You and I know what prayer is. We understand at a, at a pretty foundational level that prayer is some sort of personal communication with God. We understand that deep within us. It doesn't take you a long time to be around church to fully kind of take that on. But even though we know what prayer is, I'm afraid that for many of us, we may not actually know the certain aspects that make up prayer. For some of us, I think your understanding of prayer and my my understanding of prayer is like my understanding of a car, okay? Follow me in this analogy for a moment. Um, I, I drive a 2001 Chevrolet Prism. It is as glorious as it sounds. Any car that is spelled P-R-I-Z-M is a glorious ride. And so it is a 2001 Chevrolet Prism. It's missing a door handle on the outside, and the inside one doesn't work for the passenger seat. That's how I roll right now. And so, so I've got this beautiful vehicle, right? My, it's the, little, the, the smallest joys of my life. i got the sunroof in the thing. You crank it back, and you're riding. So I've got this beautiful little Chevrolet Prism that I drive around. And I know at a very simple level what a car is. I could stand up here and tell you that my car has four doors. It's gray. It's about the size of a go-kart. It's so small to the, it really is. Uh, you'll see, you could see me kind of wheeling home today. Um, it, it's so small, in fact, that your knees will be aching by the time you get in and out because you have to go so far down into a squat position in order to get in. It really is a workout. And so that's my car. I know that. 
I know that's what my car is, and I also know what my car does. I know it takes me home. I know I'm going to get in that beautiful ride this afternoon, and I'm going to drive back to my house, and I'm going to get up tomorrow, and I'm going to drive back into the office. It takes me where I need to be. Now, as much as I know what a car is, I know what my car is, I know it's a motor vehicle that's going to take me from point A to point B, what I could never tell you is about these certain aspects that make up that car. See, the moment you start talking with me about certain oils and filters Suspension systems, I have to write these in my notes because I have no idea what these things are. Transmissions, engines, steering systems, electrical equipment, all sorts of things. I have no clue. I actually caught sympathy in the first gathering. A guy came up to me and said, brother, I can help you learn if you want. I said, I'm, <laughs> ignorance is bliss, man. I'm fine without it. Um, now, if you ask me about those things, I, I can tell you what a car is, but I don't know what the car actually is like. I don't know the aspects of the car. I just know that I get in it and go back and forth each day. I have no idea what makes that thing up. And I want to present that for many of us in the room, that is our understanding of prayer today. We know at an intellectual surface foundational level what prayer is, but if we're honest with ourselves, we may have zero clue what aspects actually should make up our prayers. That's why when we go to pray, we walk in and we're a little bit clueless. And I don't mean that shamefully. I mean that because maybe we've never been taught. Jesus this morning is teaching us from the Lord's Prayer what certain aspects of prayer look like. And today we're going to walk through three specific aspects of the Lord's Prayer that I believe if we can understand these things, it could just change your prayer life forever. And so we'll go through them one by one. Here is the first aspect of prayer according to Jesus. A prayer means intimacy. Prayer means intimacy, and by intimacy, I mean a close familiarity or friendship. It basically just means to have a closeness. Um, look back with me at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer in verse 9. Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. He addresses his prayer in a specific way, and he starts by saying, our Father in heaven. Heaven. When Jesus is teaching you and I to address the Lord as our Father in heaven, he means a term of intimacy there. He means that our relationship with the God of the universe is going to be this intimate relationship with one another. It's this idea of this closeness, this familiarity, this intimacy that a, a child would experience with their father. And I want you to take notice of that word father and I want you to think to yourself for a moment, does your view and your understanding of God actually feel anything like intimacy right now? When you think about God, the creator of everything, do you feel like your relationship with him is anything close to intimate? Do you have a view of God being your father or do you have a view of God as someone who is so completely distant from you and unable to help you in your time of need? Do you have a view of God as father or maybe do you view God as someone who is perpetually angry with you? Like you can never just quite do right in his eyes. Do you view God as Father or do you view Him as someone you must tiptoe up to, walk on eggshells in front of, perform rightly for, and then therefore because you've learned how to behave yourself, therefore He may actually bend His ear to you? So I know for many of us, the danger and the temptation is that we project the characteristics and qualities of our earthly fathers onto God our Father. 
And if we're honest, maybe our earthly father didn't leave the best example of what a good father would do. And we know deep within our soul that we should never project those feelings onto God, but for some reason when we think about God, the only thing we think he is is like that guy in the other room that if I make him angry, he's going to kind of banish me out of the house for a season, belittle me, degrade me, and tell me just how big of a disappointment that I really am. And I would have to imagine that for many of us, I know I'm stepping on sensitive waters here and I don't do that lightly, but I would have to imagine that for many of us, our view of God is completely skewed. And so when you think about the idea of having intimacy with that God, it seems nearly impossible. You think, man, there's really no way at all that I could have intimacy with the God of the universe. And I want to actually lean into that for a minute and say, you should not have the ability to do so. It it, it should actually feel a little bit scandalous for you and I to stand here today and say that we together as a people can have intimacy with the God, the creator God of the universe. That should feel scandalous for us. It should feel impossible for us. And the reason why is because we know who we are as sinful people. Now, we've been in the book of Genesis, so the timing is perfect because we saw in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve fell, guess what was severed at the fall? their relationship with God. And so where there was once perfect union and communion with God, sin enters the world, and that was severed forever. And that is not just physical severing, that is also this communal severing that took place. There was a change in the relationship when man fell. And so the fact that you and I can stand here today and talk about a close, intimate relationship with God, the Creator, God, the Father, is scandalous to say. But what if an intimate relationship with that very God was possible? What if God and His great love and mercy for you and me actually made a way for us to enjoy full communion with him? What if he made a way for you and I to actually have a relationship with him that would be described as intimate? What if he made a way for us to be able to call him father? I want to present there is a way. And in the gospel, this is where we see this good news fully displayed to us. And see, I think for many of us, we understand the gospel in terms of somewhat as being fire insurance. Do you know what I mean by that? It means Jesus died for me, therefore I don't have to go to hell. I get a get out of hell free card. Right? We've been known, uh, we've been kind of conditioned to think that the reward of my faith is that I don't actually have to go to hell. Brother and sister, there's something way, way greater for you. The reward of your faith is not that you avoid hell as good as that is. The reward of your faith is that you get God. The gospel is not just that you're saved from sin, though that is a peace. The gospel is not only have you been saved from your sin, you have been restored to union with God. He actually adopts you into his family. So I think for some of us, when we think about being adopted into the family of God, we think that God begrudgingly chose us. Like God, because maybe he didn't have a much better option than someone as goofy as me, and so he chose me. But i got to stay out back and kind of stay away from him. He really wants nothing to do with me. But the gospel speaks a totally, entirely different message for you. See, prayer as being intimate would not make sense if we're orphans. 
But if you are an adopted son or daughter of the king, guess what? Intimacy is completely yours. Paul gives light to this in Romans chapter 8, verse 15 and 16. I want you to see what he says. Paul says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Listen to this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Paul is teaching us here that in the gospel, God has fully adopted you. If you were here today and you were in Christ, you have been adopted by him. And he says, now because of your adoption, you are able to cry out, Abba, Father. Now what does Abba mean? Some of us are thinking about a terrible band from about 20 years ago with some loose pop songs, yeah? Uh, no, what, what does Abba actually mean? Abba was a term in this culture that we could somewhat try to best translate into our language today as dad. He's, he's saying to us here that because of your adoption from God... He has now done such an amazing work in your life that you now actually get to view that very God who has purchased your adoption. You get to view him as your dad, your father. It's a term of warm endearment that says a child who is experiencing the comfort, the safety of their dad's provision, love, and care, and shepherding of them. And I want you to see that when God adopted you, he didn't adopt you to put you at the kid's table kind of away from himself. He adopted you to restore intimacy with you. He has adopted you to bring glory to himself as you experience the full weight of everything it means to be a son or daughter of God. I was getting ready this morning and I was looking back through this portion of my notes and I I sat there and I thought to myself, that's too good to be true. Like, like that reality should feel a little bit unbelievable for us, shouldn't it? I mean, Zach, are you really telling me that the God of the universe would know me by name and not only just save me, but bring me in to have an, an intimate fellowship and communion with him? That is insane. But it's true. And it should feel unimaginable for us, us yet it's exactly the reality today. If you're here today And the gospel is not the greatest reality in the universe for you that it feels almost unbelievable at times. You may not fully understand the gospel because the fact that that God would come and know us is the most gracious thing that this world has ever seen. And it is the news that will change our lives forever from now into eternity. That is the weight of the gospel that God has adopted us and brought us in. And we need constant reminders of this, don't we? I love what Paul says in Romans 8, again, verse 16. If you look at that verse again, he says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It's almost as if Paul is saying the good news is almost too good to be true. Therefore, you're going to forget it. Therefore, the Spirit of God is consistently reminding you of your adoption. It's as if you and I are prone to forget the good news of the gospel because it's too good to be true. And so he says, because that's the reality, the Spirit of God bears witness with your spirit that you're a child of God. 
And so the Spirit of God is ever living, ever moving, ever working in your life to bring you back to remember that you are an adopted son or daughter of God. Don't ever forget that beautiful news. And the Holy Spirit is committed to making sure you remember that day by day. This week as I was getting ready for the message, I was looking at adoption and I was thinking a little bit more about, hey, what does adoption mean in Paul's culture and time? It's an important thing we do when we study the Bible. We want to understand what this would have meant to the original readers, not just us as 21st century Americans today. We want to know what the text was actually speaking to the people. And so I found this incredible work by a guy. He wrote it back in the 80s, and he did some work on the Roman law of adoption and what it would have meant in Paul's day and age. I'm going to put it up on the uh, screen back here for you, and I'm just going to give you a little heads up. It's a little lengthy. Okay, It's a little technical. This is probably the biggest quote. We're setting personal records today. Um, but, and, and there's, there's a little bit of uh, kind of jargony terms in here, a little bit of lawyer terms, and so I, I'll explain it at the end, but if you need to get a picture of this, get a picture, because when you read it slowly, I'm telling you, when you can get this, it is going to change how you understand the great depths of God's mercy for you. Let's read it. It says, in adoption, all of the adoptee's legal ties with his former family were terminated, and he was placed under the full authority of his new father. Adoption, therefore, has significance for us, not in its detail, but in the concept of someone originally not part of a particular family, leaves his or her former family and becomes a part of that new family and comes under the authority of its pater familius. A pater or pater familius is the authoritative uh, figure in the household. The authority of the pater was absolute in private law. The pater had powers of discipline up to death. The pater familius owned the property of all of the members of his family and so on. Although the pater could give monies to a son or daughter to trade with, he ultimately benefited or lost by their transaction. He could arrange marriages and even divorces. On the other hand, he had duties to look after all of those in his family, supporting them financially and otherwise. Indeed, in matter of responsibility, things went further. For example, if a son injured another person, it was the pater that was responsible for the damages. And here his commentary. He says all these elements contribute to the assurance that the Christian can have in appreciating his salvation as becoming one of the sons or daughter of the Father, making him able to call him Abba, Father. Again, that's long and that's technical. Everything that quote just said is this. Everything about you, God has fully taken in. God has taken full and complete ownership of you. There is not one part of your messiness that he doesn't want. There is not one part of your life that he does not take responsibility for. There is not one mistake that you will make that he does not take rightful claim over. There is nothing in your life that is left undone to him. When he adopted you, he took all of you, every single piece of who you are. And as he does that, he is giving us one of the greatest acts of joy we could ever experience, intimacy with him as our father. Now that we've seen the first aspect of prayer is intimacy, we're going to move quicker through the second two. But the second aspect of prayer that Jesus points us to is we see that prayer means alignment. Prayer means alignment. And what I mean by alignment is we mean submission to the will of the father. Look with me at Matthew chapter 9 again. The second part of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus continues this prayer. He says, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, sticking with our car analogies for the day. Have you ever needed an alignment on your car? 
Um, I, I'm not endorsing you to do this, but here's how you can know if you need an alignment on your car this afternoon. When you get in the car, please don't do this, but you can just kind of set your steering wheel up, take your hands off the wheel, and if your car is going any direction other than straight, it is most likely time for you to have an alignment, right? If you let your hands off the wheel, you take pressure off the wheel, and your car starts to veer in a direction or another, it is because your car has, 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 has a little bit, I couldn't tell you the language for it, it's not aligned any longer, all right? We know, I don't know anything about cars. It is no longer aligned. We know nothing about cars. I've established that today. But your car needs an alignment at that point, right? Because it's going in its own direction. Well, I, I want to present to you that even though you and I are adopted as sons or daughters, you and I have been so conditioned to live in this world in our own pride, in our own sin, and in our own flesh that oftentimes where we find ourselves is veering out of alignment with the will of God. Right? What will happen is you and I, because we've been so conditioned and trained in a world that says this is all about you, right? the world exists for your glory, for your purposes, for your renown, and so because that's true, uh, what happens is we've been living in that world, and even though we've been adopted into the new family, we don't really know how to play by the family rules. And so what we need is we need alignment to the will of our Father. And so when Jesus is teaching us to pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Jesus is teaching us to pray a prayer where we come to the Lord with very open hands and with very open hearts, where we say, God, everything I have is yours. And as painful as it may be for you to align me to your purposes, I know that it is going to be the best thing for me. And so Jesus is teaching you and I to pray everything about you, your life, your kids, your spouse, your career choices, where you live, how you treat people, how you view the world, everything needs to be aligned and under the governance of his lordship. Everything about you is submitted to him, open into his hands, and we say, God, would you use us, would you have your way in us, would you align us to your perfect will? And hear me, if we pray that prayer, it is going to be a little rough for us at moments. Because your flesh is going to pull out of alignment. You're going to go in an opposite direction of where God would have for you to go. I want you to listen to a quote by a man named Paul Miller as he talks about this. He says, at the center of self-will is me, carving a world in my image. At the center of prayer is God, carving me in his son's image. At the center of our self-will is me making a world how I want it, but at the center of God's will is God chiseling away parts of you that need to be chiseled away. Hear me, you and I praying for alignment, if you do that, it is a bold prayer, but I can guarantee you this, when God is your greatest treasure, submitting to him is going to be your greatest joy. If he is the greatest treasure in the universe for you, when you submit to his will, anything he ever asks you to get back in alignment with, it is going to feel like nothing compared to the intimacy that you're experiencing with him. And so this means you and I open our hands and we say, God, have your way. God, would you move in us? Would you have your way in us? Would you align us for your purposes? And there is no greater part of that prayer and God using us to advance his kingdom in the world today. God wants to use us in that way. The third and final aspect of prayer that we'll look at together today is this, and this is where we'll close our time. Prayer means dependence. 
So the first aspect we covered was intimacy. The second aspect is alignment. The third aspect of prayer is dependence. Go back with me to the Lord's Prayer. Pick it up in verse 11. Jesus says, Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Again, when we see those verses, I think for many of us, we are trained to think about just asking for day-by-day provision which that is true in that text. Jesus is teaching us to come to him for daily provision. But, but I think there's something up underneath all of that that's even greater. Um, if you were ever a teenager that had a selfish attitude, which is all of us, unless you're not a teenager yet, or if you have teenagers right now that have a very selfish attitude, this next analogy is going to make a lot of sense for you. I want you to think with me for a moment about the difference between how a teenager views their parents and how a child views their parents. See, when a teenager needs something from mom and dad, they just go and they start running in and they just ask for it. But if you were a teenager like I was a teenager, and like most of us probably were, or maybe are currently, you really wanted nothing to do with mom and dad, right? Right? In our teenage years, this this thing kind of swells up inside of us where we want nothing to do with our parents anymore. We want full autonomy. We want complete independence. We don't want to spend time with them. We want nothing to do with our parents. We want nothing to do with them until we have a desperate need. And so as teenagers, what we do is we want to live in autonomy. But then when mom and dad come up or when when we have a need, we run to mom and dad and we say, hey, I need the car keys or I need some money. Like, yeah, I know I want nothing to do with you, but can you at least give me your stuff? Right? We know that. I've been there. I, I know the idea of me spending time with you is just unthinkable for me right now in life. But oh yeah, I'm in a pinch and I need some help. And I would imagine that for some of us, that may be the angle in which we've treated the Lord. God, I don't really want any intimacy with you. I kind of don't want anything to do with you. But when I am desperate, then I will come to you. If you're my only last resort. Now, I want you to think about the difference between a teenager and then a child. When a child has a need, they are running to mom and dad with open arms. When a child has a need, there is nothing that is going to stand in the way. But here's what's even more beautiful about a child. They run to mom and dad in this sort of desperate, dependent type of, uh, of, of understanding and thinking because they know mom and dad can do anything they please. They know that I love mom, I love dad, I want to be with them, I love my parents so much, they want my good, they want my joy, I enjoy being with them, with spending time with them, and so I run to my parents as my protector, my sustainer, and the one that wants to give me anything. So I run to mom and dad and I lay myself down before them and say, dad, mom, I need help. Dad, mom, I have questions. I need wisdom. Dad, mom, uh, I want to live in a way that is pleasing to you. God, uh, Dad, mom, I want to submit myself before you. Kids come with open arms, trusting that their parents are the best source of provision. And this is why the Bible tells us that you and I actually need to become like children. Matthew chapter 18, verse 3 and 4, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. See, I think for many of us, we have bought into the myth that spiritual maturity means independence. 
We buy into the lie that says the older you grow in Christ, that means the more able you are to handle your business. But the Bible actually presents a far different picture than that. The Bible presents this picture that as we grow older, in a sense, we actually grow younger. As we grow older in our faith, what's happening is we have a greater awareness to just how desperate we really are. It's why we can stand up here and say things like, Jesus wants your weakness. He wants you weak. He wants you dependent. Jesus wants you right where you are. Some of us need to repent because we feel like Jesus can't handle all of our baggage and all of our stuff. Some of us need to repent because we have thought what Jesus wants from us is for us to try to live lives by ourselves and to come to him as an emergency plan when in fact he wants you to be completely and radically dependent on him. And so Jesus invites us to come. He says, come all you who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Bring all your junk, bring all your mess, bring all your baggage, bring all your imperfections, bring all your brokenness, bring all your shame, bring all your guilt, bring all your embarrassment. And you cast that onto Christ because he receives you today right where you are. The invitation from Jesus today is that we need to remove the mask that so many of us are hiding behind. God help us, the last thing Jesus wants is for you to play games with your spirituality. And front like you have it together when in fact the very thing you need to do is be dependent on him. The invitation from Jesus is to remove our pride. The invitation from Jesus is to, to remove the desire for you to have yourself together before you come. He says, come. All of it, Come. And so we're going to close our time out now in a time of prayer. And before you bow your heads, what, what I want to do, this doesn't have to be a lot of us, it can be some of us, it can be none of us if it need be, but our hope is that this next 21 days again would be life-altering for some of us. Some of you may be here today and you can sit here and say, I have no idea what it means to be dependent. Maybe you're looking at your life and you think, man, I have never actually done that before. Like, I've been a Christian for years, but, but me being like a child seems foreign to me. And some of you right now, if you were honest, your faith has been cold, you've been tired, you've been exhausted, and you need Jesus to come and to shake your soul. And so what I want to do as we close, we're going to close in prayer, but I want to invite anyone that needs this next three weeks to be a, a season of time in which the Lord Jesus comes and he just puts a fresh wind into your soul. If that is you and you want to receive prayer for that this morning, I want to ask you to stand up. Anyone that wants that, I want to invite you to stand. You don't have to stand. I don't want everyone to stand unless you want it. I want to ask anyone who wants Jesus to come and shake your soul that you can put the games away, you can put the face away, you can receive prayer today. If someone is around you and you want to lay a hand on them, you can do that now. Father, we come as your kids today, kids of grace and mercy. And God, we thank you for your great love for us. God, we pray that these next three weeks would be life-changing for us. For those who are standing, God, would you shake them to their core? Would you cause them to walk like kids with you? God, I pray that you would Come and meet them right where they are in every bit of mess that they feel like they have right now. God, maybe for the first time, would you help them to come like children? 
So Father, have your way in our hearts. We need your grace, we need your help, and we need your mercy. We are dependent people. So God, make us depend on you. Do whatever you have to do to cause us to be completely dependent upon your grace alone. Father, help us to walk in intimacy with you day by day. We ask today in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, you can have a seat. As we finish, again, just want to remind you that our 21 days of prayer begins tomorrow. I'm going to invite our prayer team forward now. And over these next three weeks, if you need to receive prayer, we have this team here every week, but man, I would especially love to see us lean into this over the next three weeks. If you need prayer, they're going to be down front as you leave, so come and do that. Come and receive that. 21 days of prayer begins tomorrow. I'm looking forward to hearing the stories of what God does in our midst. You guys are free to go. Have a great rest of your week.